Nass. Um, There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft. In places untouched by human feet, far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks, and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No birds of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Oh, wait, sorry, I just realized I'm meant to be reading from 12, so I'll just go from there. (laughs) All right, verse 12. (laughs) But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say, only a rumour of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. Next, we're reading from John chapter 6, verse 66, not verse 1. All right. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. There you go. Well, I've got two things I want to do with you tonight. Uh, first one is uh, say Happy Father's Day. So if you're a dad amongst us, uh, yeah, have you had my uh, uh, congratulations that you survived so far? Because uh, if you're here as a dad, it's because you've got an old kid and you've survived. So that's very good. How many, how dad, how many dads are here? Just hands up. Okay, yeah, a bunch. Nice. Um, so good to have you with us. Uh, that's the first thing. Actually, just remember too, every day is Father's Day when you're a father, right? So there's nothing special about today, it's always the way, isn't it? But second thing I want to do is give you a gift. I want to give you uh, a gift, I want to give all of us a gift, but I want to give you dads a gift, and I want to give uh, you who are here regularly a gift. Uh, and I want to give you a gift because um, it's something we need in the context of a crisis. And there's two kinds of particular times in life where the crisis hits, which I think are most relevant for those of us here tonight. 
The first time a crisis hits, or a time a crisis hits, is it's called the midlife crisis. And, you know, it, it hits about the time when your child is 20. So if you're here tonight with a child that's brought you along, uh, you're probably prime for the midlife crisis. It's the time when you've, um, you've uh, raised all your kids, they're largely kind of doing their own thing, and so you're out of that busy phase where you're distracted and absorbed by all the parenting thing, and you're, you've got through the business time where you're trying to just get your life sorted and the mortgage paid, and you've kind of broken the back of that often, not always, but you're coming out of all of that and you're kind of going, wow, what's my life about? Where am I going? What am I doing? The midlife crisis. So you go and buy a red car. That's the deal, right? But midlife crisis. So I want to give you a gift tonight. But there's also another crisis. It's called the quarter-life crisis. The quarter-life crisis, which is pretty much every single one of you here tonight. It, what, it's what happens at the age of 20 to 25. And the quarter-life crisis is this... It's a well-documented thing that uh, through your kind of schooling years... You're told all the way through school that uh, you can be whoever you want to be. You know, year 12, at that kind of final farewell, uh, you, you just believe you can be whoever you want to be. Your life's out, you, the world's your oyster. Um, there's nothing holding you back except you and your own dreams. And so you have all these expectations set about how great you're going to be. And then you get to 20, 22, 25, and you go, you know what, I, I was meant to be anything I want to be. I'm just struggling to be something. And you hit that kind of crisis of, what is this life? What is my life? I'm not yet the CEO. I'm not yet rich. I'm not, I haven't got a, my life is not panning out the way I thought it was going to pan out. And you go through a crisis. Now, what do you do in both those contexts of crisis? Well, you need a gift. And here's the gift I'm going to give you tonight, the gift of wisdom. The gift of wisdom. Now, before you find yourself saying uh, that kind of thank you that you say when you get socks for Christmas, do you know? Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, wisdom. Yeah, thanks. Nice. Before you find yourself doing that, I just want to hold, get you to pause and appreciate. No, no. What we're going to look at in wisdom is, is profound. It really is deeply important. It is a key, the answer to so much of our life. And uh, I want us to get there. There's the first thing. I want to give you a gift. Uh, there's the first gift I want to give you, the gift of wisdom. But here's the second gift I want to give you. I want to give you uh, the gift of working out how to get wisdom. So I want to give you wisdom, and wisdom's found in the Bible. We're going to get to that. But I want to show you how to get it from the Bible. You know, um, one of the things that uh, has been said of dads, I read this many years ago, uh, dads don't eat much fruit, much fresh fruit. They don't eat oranges, they don't eat apples, these kinds of things. And you know the reason why they don't eat oranges and apples? Because they don't like the smell of skin on their fingers, and so they only eat it if someone cuts the skin off for them. Is that you? I like things being cut up for me too. There'll come a time when you'll need it mashed up for you because you'll just need to be able to drink it through a straw. But the, um, the, the, uh, here's the deal. When you read the Bible, there's lots of men, uh, men, women, who they're not much into reading. And they'll look at it and go through it if someone can cut it up for them. Well, I'm going to skin the orange for you tonight. I'm going to show you how to get wisdom from the Bible by showing you how to read the Bible, actually how to read. That's the plan. Um, and uh, these two gifts, I hope, will be a great blessing to us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to use some technology to pull this off. And I'm a little bit nervous about whether this will work. Uh, so hang in there with me and let's trust that it does. But grab your Bibles. I'm going to show it up on the screen in a second. But grab your Bible, turn up to uh, Job 28. 
we're going to go into this bit, part of the Bible and I'm going to take you through it bit by bit. But I'm going to do it in a different way. I'm going to put it up on the screen. I'm going to show you how to look at it and so on with a pen. Uh, it's uh, the magic of Wi-Fi and stuff, right? And what I want to do is walk you through this, walk you through this text and I'm going, to, I'm going to highlight and underline and so on. And the reason I'm doing it in part is because this part of the Bible is it's unusual. Um, it, it's poetry. Uh, I mean, I, not many of us are used to poetry, and I want to take you through some poetry. And it's, it's kind of in a really strange book of the Bible called Job. We've been going through that, but it's right in the middle, and it's an unusual part of the book of Job. And it's, I think it's powerful if we can just work our way through and let it tell us how to think about stuff. It really is quite an extraordinary gift. Is that enough introduction for us to jump into it? So that, can we throw it up on the screen? <laughs> it works, look at that. So, <laughs> you don't know how scared I am of this. Here we go. Um, all right, there's the beginning part of Job 28. And I want to take you through, first, let's just look at the first two lines and let me point out a couple of things. You look at those first two lines there, he mentions, the author, the poet, mentions four metals, silver, gold, iron, copper, which comes from the ore. Uh, He adds a little bit of thought. Now, those are precious metals back in the ancient world. Iron doesn't seem very precious to us, but that's because we're way down the track of history. Back in 3000 BC, uh, iron was a a special thing. But look what he says about those four metals. There is a mine for silver... Uh, Let's see if we can get this right. What's happening? Ah. There's a place... Where the gold is refined, iron is taken from the earth, copper is smelted from ore. See how he says a number of a thing about each of those things. Now you put all that together, and what's he making? What's he saying at this very outset of the uh, poem? He's saying that there are precious things. Uh, there are precious things that come from the earth, and you can get them by mining, smelting, doing these kinds of activities. That's basically what he's saying. Precious things in the earth that need to be found. Let me take you a step further, verse 3. He uses the word darkness here twice. The beginning of verse 3 and the end. But he says a couple of things about that language of darkness. In poetry, you've got to notice repetition. And the use of the word darkness in this context here doesn't just mean literal darkness, though it is that. It's it's an image of um, a place below the ground where there is no light. That's how the word darkness is being used here. And look at the point he makes. Mortals, humans, put an end to darkness. They search out the farthest, farthest recesses for or in the blackest darkness. Mortals do that. The point, back before torches and lithium batteries, mortals could do something very, very tricky. They could find precious things in the hardest places, in the dark places, in the deep places, in the depths of the earth. In the blackest and the farthest, you see. Mortals can put an end to darkness. That's how, we're, that's how we can do things. It reinforces at verse, verse 4, you'll see the far from language is used a couple of times here. Repetition. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft. In places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they dangle and sway doing their activity. The point being, what's the point? 
that humans are able to find these precious things in places a long way away. Far from human dwellings, they're able to cut the shaft. In places untouched, we can go long and vast distances to find these precious metals and we can dig deep to get hold of them in a way that is difficult. We pull it off because humans are amazing. Verse 7 and 8 drives this home. Have a look with me there. You'll see in verse 7 and 8, he mentions uh, four animals. Let me, let me circle them for you. Birds of prey, the falcon, proud beasts and the lion. Now notice this. He doesn't mention pigeons, bin chickens and bush turkeys. All right? He mentions birds of prey, Falcon, proud beast, lion. Why? Because of what he wants to say about these great creatures. No bird of prey knows that hidden past. No falcon has eyes that have seen it, though falcons have the best of eyes. Proud beasts do not set foot on it. No lion prowls there. The point is that the places where humans go and find these precious things, no other animals are able to do it. Not even the greatest of the animals. It's humans who can pull this off. We are the extraordinary ones. There's no one like us on the planet. That's the point he's making. When it comes to finding precious things and the ingenuity to be able to pull it off, there's no one like humans. We are extraordinary. You come with me now to the next chunk, verses 9 to 11. He then pulls all this together in a sense. And he says, um, you see, it's people. It's people who can assault the flinty rocks with their hands. And they can lay bare the roots of the mountains, that the very, the very bottom of a whole mountain, they can go there. That's how amazing humans are. They, their eyes see all its treasure. They bring hidden things to light. That's the nature of humans. We can, we can tunnel through rock. We can find its deepest treasures. We can go places that no other creature can go to find the most precious things. That's the skill and ability and cleverness of humans, to bring hidden things to light. Let me pull some of this together for us. Humans, he says so far, we're amazing. We are astonishing. We're clever. We're skilled. If we want something precious, we can find it. We've got the ability like no other animal, even hidden things in the deepest darkness in the furthest places, we can go and get them. Now this is a poem in praise of humanity, you get it? And it's using this thing called mining to praise our ingenuity. And it's using mining for a couple of reasons. The reason it's picked this particular thing to do it is because uh, mining's the activity of finding precious things. You'll see why that makes sense in a moment. Um, But also, back those centuries ago, mining was the greatest technology they had. It was the evidence of humankind's advancement and the extraordinary character that we had. So if you translated all of that in today's terms, you might say something like this. Humans were amazing. Um, We can find things that no other creature has been able to ever find. We can find the deep structures of life itself in the DNA. We can map the genome. We can turn genes on and off we can work out the structures of the brain we can tell you things that no one else has been able to know well I mean we can not only land a person on the moon but we now know we can find the answers to what the sun is made of what Mars is made of Uh, find precious things that's humans that's the kind of thing we do we are extraordinary you got the picture so far then you hit verse 12 notice how verse 12 starts so we're down here Verse 12 starts with, but. 
when you add a but in, you know that it's taking a turn. The tone is going to shift. Given all of this cleverness and ability of humans who can find and search out and do the craziest things to find the unfindable, he says, but. But where can wisdom be found? We can find gold in the deepest places, silver in the deepest places, but where can wisdom be found? Now, there's a sense in which you've probably got something of the tone of what's happening here. Uh, this point, verse 12, is repeated. You'll see it repeated in verse 20. We'll come back to it in a moment. It's a very important point for this poetic person. Do you get the feel of it? We can find lots of amazing things, but wisdom, where can we find it? What do you think his answer is going to be? Without listening to what he's said so far, but what do you think his answer is going to be? We can find everything that's precious, but wisdom, where can we find it? It has the feel already, doesn't it, of? I don't know that we can find it. And that's where he heads. Come across, we're down here now, verse 13. Verse 13. No mortal comprehends its worth. Wisdom, it, cannot be found in the land of the living. Do you notice he says two things? He says, firstly, that we don't comprehend how valuable wisdom is. And he says, secondly, that you actually can't find it. You can't find it in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me, you see. The sea says it's not within me. It's an extraordinary thing, this wisdom. But where do we get it? Where can we find it? Um, which then makes sense of the bunch of next verses that follow. From verse 15... All the way down to verse 19, he does this deeply important thing. He makes the point that wisdom is worth finding. See, no one understands its worth and it's not found in the land of living. But effectively, he wants to be saying to us, you need to find it. It's, you need to find it. Why do you need to find it? Because it is so precious. Look at verse 15. Uh, it cannot be bought with the finest gold. That's repeated all the way down at the bottom. It cannot be bought with pure gold. And between those two statements is the same point made again and again and again and again and again and again. He drives home this truth that, pr that wisdom, its price can't be weighed out in silver. It is so precious. Verse 16, it can't be bought with the gold of Ophir. The whole, that whole region doesn't have enough gold to pay for, for wisdom because it's so precious. Gold crystal cannot compare with it. It is priceless, this thing called wisdom. Verse 20, where then does it come from? How can we get this wisdom? Now pause right there and reflect just a little bit on what he's saying so far. Wisdom is precious. It's priceless. It's more valuable than gold. That's the point he's making. He is effectively saying, you need to have this thing. If you, if you were the richest person on earth and you gathered all your wealth, uh, you, you ought to spend it to get wisdom. But you wouldn't be able to because it's more precious than all the gold that you have. You don't even know how, it's priceless. But if you could, you ought to buy it with everything you've got. Now, do you agree? Don't say anything. But just think with me. Do you think wisdom is that precious? 
Have you spent your days hankering after getting this thing called wisdom? Saving up through all the years that you've been working to try and get enough money to to get wisdom? Who's been doing that? Would you sell all you had to get it? You know, there's a saying about money that it can't buy your happiness. Have you heard that saying, money can't buy your happiness? There's a very, we, Australia's produced some great comedians. One of them was a man called Spike Milligan. I don't know if some of you heard him, but he actually, he lived over here at Woi Woi for some time. He was a very famous comedian. He said of Woi Woi, by the way, that it was the world's largest above-ground cemetery. You think about that one for a moment. Um, Woi changed a little bit since Spike was there, but uh, its average age has dropped a touch. But um, he said this of money. He said, money can't buy you happiness. All I ask is a chance to prove it. That's clever, isn't it? You say it can't buy happiness, I'd like to have enough to give it a go. This man is saying that wisdom is more precious than all the money you could have. But all that he says here, I think, is not obvious to many of us. Now, why not? I suspect most of us are finding ourselves thinking, yeah, no. Why? Because I think most of us think we've got enough of it. We don't think we're the sharpest tool in the shed, but we don't think we're the bluntest either. I mean, none of us think we're fools. All of us think we've got enough wisdom just to get by in life and I don't really need much more. I mean, who thinks they're a fool? I'm not asking about the person sitting next to you either, but no one thinks they're a fool. More precious than gold to sell all that I could have to get this wisdom? Are you persuaded? Now, this thing matters. It matters because the Bible is saying something that disagrees with what most of us think and it's worth digging to understand why it says that and why we don't understand it. Let me try and dig a little bit further here. What is wisdom? Think with me about wisdom. Um, We heard it a few weeks ago about wisdom. Uh, Let me give you the definition again. Wisdom is the ability to navigate the context you're in well. To be a wise person is not to be smart, you don't have to be clever, you don't have to have a great IQ. Wisdom's not about how clever you are, uh, whether you've done uni or not. Some of the wisest people I know have never studied and haven't got any academic history. It's not about that. Wisdom is about understanding the context you're in and being able to make decisions within that context that are smart, that are wise, that are appropriate. Wisdom needs to understand the context and then makes decisions within it that are helpful and so. Uh, Wisdom, let me give you an illustration of this. Um, A bottle of water. Imagine you've got a bottle of water, full of water, and uh, what do I do with it? What's the wisest thing to do with this bottle of water? Well, it depends. It depends on the context. You need to know the context to know what to do with the bottle of water. If the context is a desert, where you're miles from anywhere, where your, your car's broken down and you've got only one bottle of water and there's no chance of rescue and you're days away from being helped... What do you do with that bottle of water? You guard it with your life. You drink from it sparingly. You don't let any of it spill. That's wisdom. The person who splashes it around is a fool. You see, wisdom is shaped by the... Now, if you've got that same bottle of water, but you're in a tropical paradise with a pure water spring that's clear as crystal bubbling up right next to you and there's plenty of rain that falls, what do you do with the bottle of water? Well, it won't be as precious to you, will it? You could use it to wash the sand off your feet. Don't throw the container away because you can get another thing out of the spring of water again, you see. 
So the, the bottle's okay, but the water in it, use it to clean your teeth. There's always more. You see, it's a very different attitude to the bottle of water when you're in a context of plenty of water compared to the desert. You need to know the context to know what's wise to do with it. Are you making sense of this? Context makes a massive difference about wisdom. You need to know the context. Now, hearing all of that, you may still find yourself feeling fairly underwhelmed. Yeah, okay, I get it. Underwhelmed until you see wisdom played out on the larger stage of our existence. Let me explain what I mean. Wisdom. What do you do with your whole life? See, I'm not just talking about the wisdom to know what car to buy, who to date, what job to take, what course... No, no, no. I'm talking about far bigger things. The Bible is talking about far bigger things. What is the wisest thing to do with your existence? With your whole being and life? What is wisdom there? The point? When you understand that the Bible is concerned not just about little decisions here and there, though they matter, but what it's concerned about is my whole life and my whole being and what I do with me, when you understand that that's what it's talking about, it means therefore that there's everything at stake in the issue of wisdom. Wisdom with, with respect to the whole of life is a whole of life issue. And right here we have a massive need as 21st century Westerners. We are lost and living in a world of foolishness. Humans are very clever. We can mine, we can search, we can find answers to extraordinary things. But who can know wisdom about the whole of life? That is a different matter. You know, we live at a time when mining for gold is child's play. Any engineer can do that. Just go and do a few years at uni and you can pull that, that, pull that one off. Mining is not a big technological thing. It doesn't, it doesn't impress as much anymore. But there are some things that do impress. You know, we can now, we can now give you answers about how weather systems work. We can now give answers to how the brain works. The, we can mine the very fabric of your brain and understand the neurons and the neurotransmitters and how they fire and what happens. We, we can get to the very understanding of how life begins in conception and we can play out the whole breaking down and so on. We, can make, we have got answers to the subatomic world in a way that the ancients had no clue about. We are very good at understanding and finding answers. But here's the thing. We still can't answer the most basic question of life. What is the most basic question of life? Why are we here? What is life about? We can tell you how it starts, we can tell you how the brain works, we can tell you why people do this and that, but we still can't work out the answer to why. Why do we exist instead of not exist? Why is this all of here instead of not here? I want you to notice that this ancient prophet, poet, and I take it it's Job, when you look at chapter 27 and 29, this sits between those two and there's no indication it's anyone else but Job. I take it it's Job in the midst of suffering, 
which brings a moment of clarity for him. Um, What you have is this ancient poet telling us thousands of years ago that we can find answers to all kinds of things, but we can't find the answer to the most important question, which is wisdom. Extraordinary. The Bible's true. The Bible gets it right thousands of years ago. Relevant? You bet. You know, I read the papers, I watch the odd Netflix show and I watch people on social media. I watch you all and what you do on social media. Um, I keep an eye out. I listen to people and I, I, I ask questions and, and what, I see, what I see around us is a massive confusion amongst people, a confusion of conflicting thoughts about life. You, you, you know, what, think about the question, what do we do with life? Well, some people say, whatever you like. Some people say, whatever you want to do, do that, go for it. But other people say, no, don't just do whatever you want to do, make a difference. Pursue a cause, help, change, fix. Don't just do what it... So you've got this conflict, which is the right way to go? What is the point of life? There's a confusion. There's a confusion amongst young uh, people in that um, there's, there's a whole bunch of generations that have been raised up in a cultural context where we have been told and had it hammered home to us that we are just an accident. See, what does the world say is the answer to the why question? Why are we here? It says, no reason. There's no point. And when you've been fed that thinking, we end up deeply confused, unable to know answers, unable to understand the context to have any chance of living a life wisely with this life that I've got. Sure, I can get ahead of my job. I can work out some basic stuff. But the big questions... Just like the poet said, I am still lost. For all our gains and our science and our technology, we still can't answer the most basic question. And you know why? Because he says you can't. Notice this is all in the midst of suffering. That's when the why question is most critical. If you haven't worked this one out, it'll come to you. Uh, You know, it's it's not hard to live life without answering the why question when everything's going well. You know, my job's okay, the relationships are good and I'm just happy to get on and live life. But I'll tell you when the why question becomes important, when the relationships fall apart, when you're alone at night on your own, finding those questions bubbling up, why is this happening to me? What's the point of all of this? Why do I even exist? In the midst of the cancer diagnosis, when you've got six months to live, that's when the question comes to the surface, why? What is it all about? Why has this happened to me? When all the noise stops. Now come back with me to this text, verse 20, you see, where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? Look what he has to say next. Verse 21, we're back down to here. Look at verse 21. Look at the first, first it is hidden. It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing. Where does wisdom come from? It's hidden. It's concealed even from the birds of the sky. Exactly. And the last 60 years of modern culture is a study in how right this ancient poet is. 
we are living in a time where it's the blind leading the blind. See, don't, don't make a mistake. Don't make the mistake of thinking just because we can find the answers to some things, that therefore we have the capacity to find the answers to all things. Because what this Bible writer is saying, you can, you can find all kinds of things, but there's one thing you cannot find yourself. You can't find it within you, you can't find it out there in the cosmos, you can't find it by studying science, you cannot find wisdom in those places because it is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, hidden by, I take it, the hand of God. This is profound stuff. Now, it's not despairing though, it is humbling, it's meant to humble us but he does all of this because he's got an answer. What's his answer? It is hidden and concealed. But look at verse 23. God understands the way. God understands the way. He alone knows where it dwells. Now that is a beautiful statement except that it's a two-edged sword. That is to say, um, there, there, is, there is an answer, God knows. But it's humbling because God alone knows. Not us. It's hidden from us. He has kept it hidden from us. Now, why is God the one who alone knows? Well, he gives you the answer. See the word for. Whenever you see the word for, you understand that that's explaining something. Do you see that there in verse 24? Why, does he, why is he the one alone? Because he views the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. He is the omniscient God. He's the God who can know and see everything. So, of course, he knows where wisdom is found and what wisdom is. Now, this part of the Bible, this little section, he has a massively complex, rich thing. And I'm not going to go through all of it. But I want to give you some sense of what it says by showing you. Come down to verse 27. And you'll see he uses a bunch of words here. He looked at wisdom, he appraised wisdom, confirmed it and tested it. Now those four words, I understand people tell me about this, I'm not, uh, I don't read Hebrew, but people tell me that those four words can be used of a jeweller looking at a, ju- a precious stone, appraising it, testing it, ensuring that it's got no flaws in it and then mounting it so that it, it's shown off in all, all its beauty. And what's being suggested, it's kind of this part of the Bible just fires off these wonderful thoughts. What's being said here in verse 27 is that God is the God um, who has appraised wisdom, tested to see if it's got any flaws and then put it in place as the most precious of his things. God is a God who is for wisdom. He loves wisdom. In fact, as you come into the New Testament, you find out that he is wisdom. Wisdom is who he is. And so when he creates the universe, he creates it with wisdom built into the very fabric of it, though he keeps it from us and you can't quite see it, but it's built there, it's there. Wisdom is part of our life. There is one of the big things that's there. But what I want you to notice too is this other thing. Look at verse 25. The the word that starts there in verse 25 is the word when and you see it repeated in verse 26. Do you see that word when? Now, key thing. When did he look at, appraise, confirm and test wisdom? When he established the wind when he made a decree for the rain. When did that happen? At creation. When God created. God is the one who alone knows the way to wisdom because he's the one who created all things with wisdom embedded in it. It's not that wisdom existed and he somehow found it 
When he created, he built it into the very fabric of our existence. He's the one who puts it in place because he is wisdom. He's the one who chose to do everything based on wisdom. And then, in the most wonderful conclusion of this chapter, which comes to a great climax, I don't know if you've noticed, but all the way through the chapter up to this point, it's been poetic. There's a kind of rhyme and a metre to it that runs all the way through. But you get to the last verse of the chapter and it all changes. It changes because it's the great climax of the chapter. And let me show it to here in verse 28. Now we just have a statement. (laughs) God said to human race what does he say the fear of the lord that's what wisdom is the fear of the lord god now speaks he speaks into the darkness and the ignorance and the hiddenness the one who alone knows wisdom and he delivers it to humanity and he says this is what wisdom is it is the great gift of god Fear God and do what pleases Him. But here's the thing. I think some of you hear that and you go, yes, it is just profound. But I think many others of us hear that and go, I was hoping for a little more. It seems a little disappointing. There is a thing more precious than gold that all the gold in the world can't buy. It's, in, it's priceless. You need to find it. No one can find it except God alone who has it. And you can only get it from Him. And then when finally it arrives, you hear it is, fear the Lord. And you go, wow. Is that all? Yes. But it takes wisdom... To know that it is wisdom. The fool doesn't see how wise it is. In the book of Proverbs, there's two ways of talking about the beginning of wisdom. One, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But there's another place where it talks about the beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. You just need enough wisdom to realise that you need more wisdom. That's the start of the whole journey of wisdom. And I tell you what, you need enough wisdom to realise how wise... This gift of God is to us. Let me explain why it is so wise. Do you remember wisdom? Wisdom is making good decisions in the context that you're in. But you've got to understand the context to work out what the good decisions are. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine you're rock climbing. You've got a sheer wall. It's, you know, 10 miles high or whatever. I don't know, it's a long way up. And it's sheer, there's no cracks, there's no fingers. All you've got is a rope holding you that you're climbing up. What's wisdom? Wisdom in that context is to pay attention to the rope. Spend all the money you have on the best rope. Don't worry about the colour of your shirt. It doesn't matter. What matters in that context is the rope. Let me give you another illustration. It's the context of scuba diving. What's wisdom in the context of being underwater? What's, that's the context. What's the wisdom? Wisdom is paying attention to your air supply. It all boils down to just that. It doesn't matter what brand of wetsuit you have. What really matters is your air supply. Our context, that's what we need to get our heads into. What is our context? Because everything hangs on that. What are we as humans? 
Are we just an accident? Are we just the product of random chance over a long time that's thrown up complex biological creatures like us, but also um, brought to be cockroaches and trees and rocks? And are we just an accident of primeval time, slime as we cross? Is that all we are? Because if that's all we are, it has a massive implication. Um, are we just an accident? Or are we the purposeful creation of a wise, holy, loving God? There is the big question of life. Which are we? What's the context? Because the way you answer that makes all the difference in the world to how you live. If we're an accident, if you believe the evolutionary tale that just over millions of years, random chance has caused us to emerge who we are, if, that's, if you believe that tale then you can live however you like. You can pursue a great career, have a family, kids, uh, invest your life in a cause, or you can drop out and watch TV all day. It doesn't matter what you do. If we're just an accident, there's no meaning to life, there's no purpose to life. You can make up a purpose, but you need to know that you're making it up. There is no purpose, really. You're just pretending there is one to make yourself happy. You need to know that if you're an accident. And you need to know that if there is no purpose to life, your life is meaningless and so are you. You are no more significant than autumn leaves that grow up, turn brown, drop off and die and are gone. Your life is no more significant than that if we're just an accident. You need to be aware of that. You need to own that truth. And wisdom is just... Actually, there's no need for wisdom. Just live how you like. But know that you're empty. There's nothing really to you. If that's the context... But here's the alternative. If we are the purposeful creation of a personal God, the wise, holy and loving God, then the reality of our context is that He is our rope. He is our heir. We have nothing except by His hand. The Scriptures say that in Him we live, move and have our being. We came from Him for a purpose. Remember, He's a wise God. And we live every moment in him and by his strength. And one day we'll stand before him as our judge. He is the beginning, the middle and the end of our existence. He is our rope. He is everything. That's, if we've been made by God, that's the reality of our context. What's wisdom in that context? If you're going to stand before God when you die, everything's going to be stripped away. There'll be no more family, there'll be no more friends around you. It'll just be you on your own before the holy, righteous God of the universe. That's it. There'll be no success that you can bring to bear. There'll be no excuses that you can make. It'll just be you stripped bare with who you are in front of the holy God. And you know what matters on that day? Not whether you had a great family or got married even or had a great career. You know what's going to matter on that day? What he thinks of you. That's what it all boils down to. Doesn't matter whether you've gain the whole world if you have not paid attention to the rope the god who upholds us every if you've not paid attention to being in right relationship with him you'll lose your soul it'll all be gone the thing that matters most is your relationship with this god and so wisdom god says to the human race this is wisdom 
get right with me. Strip it, that's what it all boils down to. Do you see how profound that wisdom is? How do I get right with him? That's a whole other discussion. But do what you can do to find out. And don't live that myth, that kind of idea that, okay, I believe that we've been made by God, I believe that we've been made purposely and wisely by this God for a reason and so on, I believe all of that. But I think that God will be happy for me to live whatever I want to live and be whoever I want to be because he'll understand. No, he's told you. He's told you what he thinks, which is not to live how you like, but to fear him and shun evil. If you front up before him saying, well, I thought you'd like this, he says, I told you. I've given you wisdom. You've not been in the dark. Don't fall into the trap of doing a deal with God either. It goes like this. I'll trust you, God, if you answer all my questions. Have you met people like that? All kinds of questions and if, God, you can answer them all, then I'll put my trust in you, I'll follow you. God says in reply, that can't be the deal because I am God and you are not. You can't know all the answers. There are things beyond you. You can't know the answers because I'm not going to give you all the answers. I've given you what you need to know, which is fear the Lord, that is wisdom. In fact, I've given you more. I've come in the person of the Son 2,000 years ago, so you can see me in the flesh. You can read about me in full detail. I've actually come into the light so you can see who I am in the person of Jesus. And I've died and been raised again in history to give you evidences. I've given you plenty. I can't give you everything because you don't have the capacity to understand it all. I'm the one in whom wisdom dwells. Now let me apply this to us directly. Two people and we'll finish. The first one is to apply it to those amongst us who are suffering. I know some of you are, I know some of you are going through a really tough time uh, and I want to say to you a couple of quick thoughts. It's in the context of suffering that the why question will emerge most vividly. It's that time when you go, why is this happening to me? Why did I lose that person? Why is this... That's when the why question comes and Job helps us understand what to do in that context. Job says this, you almost never will know the answer to the why question. Why suffering? Why your particular experience of suffering? Job says we can search out all kinds of things and find the answers to all kinds of things, but there's one thing, the wisdom that God has built in that we can't know the answers. God has not given us to know these answers. And that is helpful to understand. In your cry for understanding and, and insight, God says, I can't give you everything. But what I can give you is this. Fear me. Press on shunning evil because this life will end and one day you'll be in the blessing of relationship with me for eternity where it'll all be worthwhile. Fear me. Shun evil. That's wisdom. Suffering. But I want to finish up by speaking to dads and the rest of us who may be in quarter-life crisis. Friends, when you boil things down to the very base, which the Bible does so often and so well, what matters most is not your career, 
your success, your finances, your family, those things have a place and are important, but those are not the most important things. What's the most important thing? Your relationship with your God. What matters most is that you bow to him, recognise him for who he is and get that peace in place as the fundamental bedrock of your life. And here's the deal, if you do that, if you put that in place where it's meant to be, then this really extraordinary thing happens. It will ground you and help you start making sense of the rest of life and start to make wiser decisions in all kinds of other places in life which is God's very purpose for you. Well, there's my Father's Day gift, wisdom. Boil it down to see what the context is we live in, to be able to make the right decision in that context, and it's that. May that be the very shape of our existence together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you so much that you have revealed to us the very heart of existence, what matters most in life, that we be in right relationship with you and we would pray please that you would help us have enough wisdom to see the wisdom of that, that you would work in our lives tonight to uh, shape, change, mould us, transform us to see uh, how much you matter, how precious it is to have this kind of wisdom and that we might live this wisdom day by day, that we might live aware that the most important thing is walking before you in godliness and holiness through the merits of Christ, trusting in his death and resurrection that we're in relationship with you. We pray that'll be the case for us for the rest of our days. Amen.